women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen, on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and I'm speaking today with journalist Indira Lakshmanan. Indira is a special guest on campus, here to give the annual Distinguished Teaching Lecture in Service and Civic Engagement. Her theme is Journalism as Public Service, a topic she knows a great deal about. Indira's reported from 80 different countries over the years. She's covered coups, campaigns, and revolutions, working for the Boston Globe, Bloomberg News, the International New York Times, and many others. She held a chair in journalism ethics at the Pointer Institute until just a few months ago when she became executive editor of the Pulitzer Center. So, Indira, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm fascinated by your career, and I'm fascinated by the theme of your talk. Um, I think journalism is in the news so much, we often think of it as a business or as a, uh, as a given, but we don't always think, always think of it as a public service. So I'm, I'm curious if you can tell me how you, uh, how you think of it. Oh, absolutely. I think I went into journalism, like many of my colleagues, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the one hand, it was sort of a hall pass to be able to ask <laughs> questions of powerful people, um, hold them to account. It was an opportunity to seek out and understand the powerless. It was an excuse to kind of quench my endless curiosity uh-huh. about too many disparate topics. Why to settle on exactly yeah. to settle on one thing, um, a passport to travel, of course. But you know, above all, it was a platform to tell stories and expose wrongdoing and try it using the skills that I had to make the world a better place. So mm-hmm. you know, you yourself as a former journalist know the old cliche that journalism gives voice to the voiceless. Yeah. It comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comforted. And like many cliches, it's true. Yeah, it's very <laughs> so true. I'm playing out right now quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do think um, journalism is a public service. Mm-hmm. And we journalists tend to think of ourselves as watchdogs um, for the public, the sort of eyes and ears for everyone else who is doing their other important roles in society and jobs. And so we hold it as important to us to hold government accountable. Interestingly enough, there was a study that came out of Notre Dame several months Months ago, mm-hmm. that found that in communities where they have lost their local papers, the cost of local government actually went up. Oh, interesting. So there really is a straight line correlation between journalists being able to hold government accountable and government doing a better job. And yeah. we see this not only in developed democracies like our own, um, but we see it in authoritarian states. You know, mm-hmm. the less free the press is, the less accountable a government is held. So, you know, I started my career working overseas and following transitions from authoritarian rule to democracy for the last 10 years. I've been working in Washington covering politics um, as a national political correspondent for Bloomberg covering the 2008 campaign and then for eight years covering the State Department traveling with Hillary Clinton and then with John Kerry. Um, But I have to say whether you're covering Washington or whether you're covering, you know, 80 different countries around the world as a foreign correspondent, the themes are the same about about journalism 
journalists being out there to be the eyes and ears for the public, holding the powerful accountable? Well, we have, uh, I have a sense, uh, and it's documented in recent polls, um, that trust in the media, though, is really, really going down. Um, the Gallup uh, uh, company, for example, did a poll last year. They, they track trust in, in media, and I think the news media is down at the very, very bottom, dropping, but just above Congress, which can't, can't be good. <laughs> Quite a bit above Congress. Let me correct okay. the record on that. Okay, so but in I the actually, rankings, just above Congress. Yeah, well, I actually have <clears> done <throat> a bit of uh, quite a bit of research on this. I spent a year and a half as the Newmark Chair in Journalism Ethics at Pointer, and I did um, several. Uh, public trust surveys on media trust. In fact, um, one of our three researchers was a Princeton professor, um, Andrew Guess, um, in the politics department who did excellent work. And the research that we did was trying to actually track this. And as you say, Gallup is kind of set the standard. Gallup was the first pollster to ask the question about how much trust people had in the news media. Mm -hmm. They first asked the question in 1973. And um, others have in the last 20 years joined in and asked the question as well. But it's really interesting if you look at the the track of this, if you look at a graph, what you see is that the all-time high since the question was asked, remember, they only started asking the question in 73, right. but it hit an all-time high where we're talking about 75% or so of Americans saying that they had a great deal or quite a bit of trust in the media in 1976. Why 1976? I think that was because it was post-Watergate, mm-hmm. it was post Vietnam War, and there was a halo effect on the press where really every ordinary American had a sense of the value of the press Mm -hmm. in sort of bringing forward really important stories, exposing wrongdoing, getting a president ousted, getting a war to come to an end. These were really high-profile important issues. Another factor here, though, is that there was a sort of unusual period in American history between the 1950s through the 1980s where most people got their news through one of the three nightly network newscasts, ABC, CBS, NBC. Those were the days, right? <laughs> Those were the days, and I know you did work in yes. network television, so you experienced that sort of um, you know, golden era of network television news. But let's be honest, if we look at the history of news in America prior to the 1950s, any community in America would have had a panoply of newspapers. There would mm-hmm. have been the pro-union paper, there would have been the Democrat paper, the Republican paper, the, you know, the communist paper, yeah. There would have been different papers that represent different points of view. And these weren't always channels of democracy and truth, truth-telling, truth Not were necessarily. They? I mean, they, journalism, were, yeah. they were partisan. Mm-hmm. They were, um, you know, there was that sort of hyper-partisanship that we talk about now, the polarization. That existed then. Mm-hmm. So there's been a long history of people saying, I don't trust the media, but I trust my media. Mm-hmm. I trust the paper that I read. All right. So the 50s through the 80s was this anomalous, in a way, ahistorical period because Everyone in America was essentially living in a uniform reality where they were hearing Walter Cronkite or Eric Severide or, you know, one of these three august, they happen to be older white men. Completely coincidentally, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> delivering the news to them every night. And there was a uniform reality. Mm-hmm. What changed in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan? He deregulated the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And part of that was about the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine, which said that you had to give 
all sides uh-huh. in a in a network news cast. Now, when suddenly you didn't have to do that anymore, what does that give rise to? It gives rise, it allows hyperpartisan broadcast media uh-huh. to come into being. So that allowed for the, you know, the surge of Fox News, for example, right-wing talk radio like Rush Limbaugh. And the, co- the, the concept was that what's the problem with having highly partisan broadcast? Because there can be highly partisan broadcast on the other side. Mm-hmm. But what actually happened happened was it was right of center to far right wing mm-hmm. um, entities that took advantage of this mm-hmm. and really sort of milked it. So Fox News became a complete powerhouse. Roger Ailes um, was the genius mm-hmm. who essentially came up with this business plan of draw in older, largely white viewers by saying, don't believe them, don't believe the mainstream media, we're the only ones who are fair and balanced. And it became a great business model. And again, there are parts of the country where all you can get is this right-wing talk radio. So it really took hold, and this term of mainstream media as being a derogatory took hold in certain corners. So when people talk about Trump and, you know, how he has denigrated the media so much, of course he's denigrated the media. He's called us scum, garbage, fake news, the very enemies dishonest of the people, people, the worst of all, of yeah, course, yeah. is enemies of yeah. the people. And what is the objective here? So I, a couple of things on this. Donald Trump did not invent fake. You know, he did not invent hatred for the media. He mm. did not invent distrust in the media. What he has done brilliantly is he's capitalized on it and he's amplified it. Mm-hmm. Um, and his purpose in this is, of course, if you discredit the media, and you say, oh, you can't trust the media as a independent, legitimate source of information, then it's a way of making himself the only legitimate source of information. And he's done this extremely effectively with his base. So if you try to say that all the media is fake, then even when the New York Times comes out with an incredibly detailed, many thousands of words long story that details how he got his money, how it was inherited, not earned, what happened with his taxes over the years, um, Um, The story ends up, his base says, oh, I don't believe that. That's fake news, even if there are documents attached and video and audio and all sorts of primary source material. But but let's let's talk a little bit about the role that the media itself has played, the, in a sense, mainstream media Mm -hmm. itself has played. I mean, I'm going to refer back to 2016, a million, million years ago, back before (laughs) Donald Trump was president. He was still candidate Trump. Right. And uh, Les Moonves, chairman of CEO at the time, said in a semi-public, semi-private setting. Yes. um, uh, the, the candidacy of Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but it's great for CBS. That's right. And he was talking, of course, about ratings. Absolutely. Uh, and that seems to have borne out to be true um, uh, in spades uh, in the last couple of years because this has become a TV show that nobody in America can look away from, not just a TV show, obviously, but an online show and so on and so forth. Do we need to talk more about that, about how the media itself is benefiting from all of this uh, mudslinging? Oh, well, it's it's absolutely legitimate. And Les Moonves has said it, but I think people at CNN said it as well, that Donald Trump is good for ratings. And he knows that. Mm-hmm. Again, the man is brilliant. He is a master marketer without peer. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that he knew how to exploit his celebrity with celeb with apprentice, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he knew how to translate that onto a political stage. And you're right. The media also realized, I don't think the media was doing it because ratings were good. But I think once they realized that ratings were good, 
um, they understood that people wanted to watch him. Now, you could say, some people say the media bears responsibility for this because in the 2016 campaign, they were carrying his press conferences live and giving him uh, billions, of, billions dollars of dollars in yeah. free media that he barely had to spend um, because he was getting so much free airtime. And it happens even now that we carry his press conferences and rallies live. It's happening, by the way, less and less. It's also been true, though, that his attacks on the media have boomeranged to some extent in the sense that New York Times and Washington Post, two newspapers that he hates and that he's called failing and every bad yeah. word you can think of, that they have record subscriptions now, too. So I do want to say something about how this has boomeranged a little bit. It is true that Donald Trump's election in the fall of 2016 coincided with the lowest levels of trust recorded by Gallup. Mm-hmm. But... But, and this is what not only Gallup's survey, but also the Pointer Media Trust survey and others were able to document, it has bounced back in 2017 and 2018. Now, I'm not saying back to 1970s levels, not at all, but it has gone up. So there is clearly some element of the American public who has been upset and offended by the president saying Uh, you know, weaponizing this term fake news, which, by the way, and we can talk about it if you want, but it meant something entirely different in 2016. Which is still a major threat to the United States um, Yes, it meant conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories, whether it's Russian bots and trolls, but also um, people in the sort of blogosphere, in Reddit, in Gab, which is this white supremacist version Mm. of Twitter, um, you know, people putting out false information. That's what fake news really meant. Because let's face it, by definition, if something is fake, it's not news. Um, the president heard that term, and he was offended that people were saying that he he might have won because of false news. news. And so he took the flipped word, flipped the yeah. coin, and made it mean something else. But I do think it's important that there has been some boomerang effect that trust in media is rising. The unfortunate undercurrent of that is that it's highly, highly partisan. Democrats have very high high trust in the media. Republicans have very low trust in the media. And so so those lines have diverged. Let me jump in and say and ask, actually, if we have this idealized good media, the uh, media that's that's focused on public trust, that's focused on democracy, that's focused on public service, given this uh, almost unprecedented, although I take your point about earlier periods of history, but almost unprecedented, certainly in modern memory, hostility between Washington and, and, and the news media. How does a reputable, how should a reputable journalist as an individual or news organization respond? I mean, for example, there's, there's, there's been talk recently about boycotting uh, coverage of, of President Trump. Is that an appropriate response? Look, this is a great question because it also takes into, this, into the realm of what is our role as journalists. And I really endorse what my old boss, Marty Barron, who used to be the head of the Boston Globe and is now the executive editor at the Washington Post, what he says, which is, we're not at war. We're at work. I mean, this is true. We do not want to be branded as part of the opposition or part of the resistance or something like this, because that's not our role. Our role is to be truth tellers. So when people ask me, is journalism activism? I say, yes, journalism is a form of activism, activism for the truth. I mean, that's really, we're out there as truth seekers and we have to be out there open-minded to wherever our reporting may lead us. And it may lead us in ways, in places that we were not expecting to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as a slight diversion from this, I'm on, um, I've had the real honor to serve for the last year and a half on the PBS Editorial Standards Committee. And we 
took a really long time mm-hmm. over the last year and a half with a very diverse group of news professionals from a range of media outlets to think about what are the best news standards we can put in place. And one of the things we did was we eliminated the word objectivity from the guidelines because I, for one, mm-hmm. argued that there is really no such thing as objectivity. That is, you know, kind of like a view from nowhere, which, by the way, was also a white male view when people talk about objectivity. All of us come to the table with different backgrounds, different experiences. We can't be truly objective. What we can and we must be is we have to be editorially independent. We have to be accurate in our reporting. We have to be fair. Um, This is not the same as balance, by the way, because balance can be taken as false balance, false equivalence, or both sides journalism. But we have to be fair. We have to be open-minded to whatever facts may present themselves as we're doing our reporting. We have to be inclusive, having both diverse people working in our newsrooms and diverse voices reflected in our stories. And by the way, by diversity, I don't just mean racial and ethnic and gender diversity. I also mean rural America being represented. I also mean people from very um, traditional religious backgrounds being um, represented. I also mean veterans. I mean gun owners. You know, our newsrooms in the two coasts, in elite sort of national publications, do tend to be... um, populated by college graduates, there is some sort of inherent liberal groupthink that goes on. And newsrooms need to do a better job of hiring diverse people across and the spectrum. And what are the mechanisms that are going to make that happen? It seems like an awfully heavy lift to, to, to institutionalize that across the board. I think it's something that's already happening. The New York Times has already talked about how they have hired some military vets as reporters. Um, both the Post and the Times I've seen have hired some um, openly religious people mm-hmm. who write about religion and life, and it informs the reporting they do. Um, and I think that's all to the good in the same way that we want to, you know, hire first generation people, LGBT people, all different kinds. Um, but, you know, I do think it is a, a tricky time right now when people think about is journalism activism. I still think we need to stick to some of the old traditional rules of, uh, for example, I'm registered as an independent. That's, I feel, very important because Mm -hmm. I don't want to be associated with one party or the other, even though, by the way, now I'm an opinion columnist Uh for the Globe, so Uh I guess I could do what I want. But I still feel the old system that you want to be nonpartisan. I don't donate to political parties or to candidates. Um, You know, we don't put lawn signs up. I mean, these are rules that most newsrooms have in place. That said, in the last couple of years, there have been assaults on journalism, you know, Mm. as journalism that I think have been perfectly fine for the Washington Post to stand up and make a new motto, democracy dies in darkness. I think it's perfectly fine for journalists to come out swinging on press freedom. For example, the CNN lawsuit against the White House saying, you know, you have to give back Jim Acosta's press credential, which Fox News joined with an amicus brief. And a lot of people were surprised. But I would say, you know, I I'm I'm pleasantly surprised and happy that Fox did that. And they did it rightly because they know that the same sword that is used against CNN could be used against them in a different administration or a different moment in time. Let me talk about the model or ask you about the model, the journalism model for a minute, because you you talk about a time before the fairness doctrine was was set aside, which makes me ask, should we reinstate the fairness doctrine? There's there's one set of solutions to our current morass, Mm -hmm. perhaps, is to, to bring in more 
more policy or regulation. But there's others too. There's uh, the technological innovation has completely transformed journalism, and that has nothing to do with policy per se. It has to do with the internet. It has to do with social media. It has to do with all sorts of different things. Do we need to innovate an entirely different model for journalism for delivering information and news to the public to sustain democracy? Yes, we need to innovate it. And if you have the idea, please immediately <laughs> fix journalism for us. <laughs> I can take over the podcast if you know a way to if you know a way to fix journalism. We all need to know it. No, look, I mean it's a fact, unfortunately, that the internet has been killing journalism as we knew it. At the time, the year that I first joined the Boston Globe in 1993, I joined the same week that the New York Times bought the Boston Globe for 1.1 billion dollars. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. When it was sold just a few years ago to the Henrys who own the Red Sox and yeah. other things, it was sold for something like 70 million dollars. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is at the time in the early 90s Big metro newspapers were still cash cows. Yeah. They still had like 38% profit margins because of advertising. That is dead. Mm -hmm. And the internet has killed that. So the internet has not only killed, um, you know, sort of the big ads, the department store ads that kept newspapers alive. It's killed classifieds. And it's also kind of opened the floodgates to anyone can be a publisher. You know, anyone can sit in their basement and blog about Afghanistan, yeah. even if they've never been there, and pretend to be an expert and pass them, try to pass themselves off as a journalist. And it's hard because as news consumers, I talk about practicing news hygiene <laughs> in the same way that you brush your teeth and you put good food into your body because you want to be helpful. If you put junk news into your brain, there's going to be junk, yes, you know, well. so you, you have to watch your news hygiene. And it's, it's hard because some people, and it's not just young people, it's actually in a lot of cases, I think, older people who are just not familiar. They look at Facebook. Facebook has in the past made every story look the same, yeah, whether yeah. it's from the New York Times or whether it's from JoeBlow.com. And people don't know necessarily what's true and what's not true. And what so, about, what about, let me jump in on there for a second. What about other models such as philanthropy-driven journalism? Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your new organization, the Pulitzer right. Center, and what, 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 what innovations are being done there, because I think it is a, a, a step towards a, an, at least an alternative model to the way yes, we Yes, you're absolutely now. right. Philanthropy journalism has sort of um, really had a blossoming over the last decade. Um, we are the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. We were founded in 2006. I just joined um, in uh, the end of August 2018 as the executive editor. It's a wonderful organization that, if I may say so, is um, in some ways keeping international reporting alive mm -hmm. in the American media. Because let's face it, there are a couple of news outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major networks, who still have the money to do international reporting. But most news outlets in America do not mm -hmm, anymore. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to um, spend you know, 12 years on the foreign staff of the Boston Globe. They no longer have a foreign staff. Yeah. And most newspapers in America don't anymore. So if they want to do foreign reporting, how do they do it? The money, the dollars aren't there. They're struggling just to keep local reporters yeah, employed. Absolutely. And local news organizations are drawing up. So this is where we come in. We go to foundations. We raise money from people who care deeply about 
Americans being globally informed about critical issues around the world, whether it's climate change, whether it's water shortages, whether it's conflict and development of democracy. We raise money from foundations or individuals, and then we, a sort of panel of um, former foreign correspondent editors, look at people's proposals. They come to us from freelancers. They come to us from uh, news organizations. For example, um, we are a huge supporter of the PBS NewsHour. Um, very much of the international reporting, almost all the international reporting that you see on PBS NewsHour is supported by the Pulitzer Center. We've supported huge entire issues in the New York Times Magazine. So we're making, and by the way, we do this with small papers too, with mm -hmm. the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We do it with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, with the Tech Texas Tribune, another uh -huh. nonprofit news organization. So, you know, there are others like ProPublica, like the Texas Tribune, like the Center for Public Integrity. There are other nonprofit news outlets, um, the Marshall Project, that are out there focused either on single issues or on yeah. lots of issues. And I think it has to be one yeah. of the ways that we're trying to save journalism is through philanthropy. I think it's very interesting. I also uh, am, am aware, I'm sure everybody's aware, that there's risks involved in that as well. Sure. Because, uh, you know, who who pays the piper calls the tune and all that. And, of course, we're, we're seeing plenty of criticism of the likes of George Soros, who does also support um, journalism. Uh, how, how, how do you think you can protect from that sort of thing? Look, I mean, we certainly, and I think that most of the nonprofit news organizations have in place really tight firewalls. Mm -hmm. So the deal is, if you want to give us money because you believe in important and worthy global journalism about important issues like human rights and global health, then go ahead and give us the money, but you don't get to decide which stories we pick. And you don't get to pick the stories, and you don't get to pick the journalists, and you don't get to edit the stories and see them beforehand. So I think we're not unique in that respect. I think that, you know, I'm sure that ProPublica does that as well. Yeah. Pointer, where I used to work, also does that. You know, so there is a firewall between funders and the content that comes out. Indira, I would love to go on all day, but I, I, I think we're out of time. So I want to say thank you very much, Indira Lakshmanan, for coming. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll carry on some of these conversations in future podcasts, I'm sure. I'd love it. I want to thank our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, our producer, Danielle Alio, and uh, our audience. I hope you'll come back to hear more uh, insights and reflections from the women coming through and coming from Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.